What can a book, usually reserved for the young adult section, tell us about life on the home front during World War I? We'll discuss that today on Footnoting History. Hello, this is Elizabeth. Welcome to Footnoting History. Lucy Maud Montgomery's creation, Anne of Green Gables, is arguably one of Canada's most famous exports. The irrepressible redhead and her joie de vivre have been embraced as far as Japan and have spawned TV movies and shows, including my personal favorite, The Road to Avonlea. The Anne series, written between 1908 and 1942, tells the story of the orphan Anne Shirley from her adoption as a young girl by a brother and sister on Prince Edward Island in Canada and takes her through teaching, college, marriage to Gilbert Blythe, childbirth, child loss, raising her family, and finally, in a recently published work, though written in 1942, old age. While Montgomery's characters were not just limited to Anne and her many progeny, she gave birth to six children, it is the experiences of Anne's youngest daughter, Bertha Marilla Blythe, during World War I, which is the focus of this podcast. Like many fictional works, there are hints until this book, but no actual dates to let the reader know when any of the Anne books, as I call them, were intended to take place. None, that is, until Rilla of Ingleside, the eighth book published in 1921. We discover that Bertha Marilla, nicknamed Rilla, was 14 years old at the outbreak of World War I in August 1914, and the book takes us all the way to the war's end and the aftermath in 1919. Now, I understand that not all of you may have pored over these books during your childhood, or potentially reread each one each year until well into your 20s, like some may have done, no judgment. But luckily for you, this story and its characters are extremely approachable, if I do say so myself, and I do. If you're only going to read one memoir of World War I, I would suggest Robert Graves's Goodbye to All That. If you want one about life on the home front, you can't go wrong with Vera Britton's Testament of Youth. But for an unexpectedly eye-opening expression of life for those left behind, and even some details of experiences on the battlefield, my favorite is Rilla. All right, to the topic at hand, five points about life at the home front during the war to end all wars. Now, the book Rilla of Ingleside doesn't start by thrusting us directly into the Great War, but it does include a shadow of events to come as the family's housekeeper, Susan, reads the local paper in the opening chapter. As her eye quickly glances over a front-page story that some Archduke Ferdinand or other had been assassinated at a place bearing the weird name of Sarajevo, Susan tarried not over uninteresting, immaterial stuff like that. She was in the quest of something really vital. She was looking for local gossip. From there, we meander into an introduction to the family cat, as well as various characters who will fill the book's pages. But soon, those shadowy, or as Montgomery described them, hideous events on the horizon would become all too near. By war's end, Susan, the housekeeper, would no longer be poring over the newspaper for gossip, and would have all of the battlefields and landmarks of Europe memorized. As Walter, the poet son of Anne and brother of Rilla, says to a friend who doesn't see why war in Europe matters to those in Canada, 
Before this war is over, every man and woman and child in Canada will feel it. Feel it to your heart's core. You will weep tears of blood over it. It will be years before the dance of death is over. And in those years, millions of hearts will break. Now, if you think Walter's a bit of a downer, you would be right. But he's actually only one of the few people who realize the extent of what the war will bring. Most did not believe that the war would last years, which brings us to our first point. In Rilla of Ingleside, the announcement that England has in fact declared war on Germany is made at a dance, at a lighthouse, Rilla's first grown-up dance. And it's met by many with the assurance that the war, which sounds like jolly good fun, is going to be over by Christmas. Most inhabitants of Prince Edward Island believe that the British, especially their navy, would wipe the floor with Germany in one to two months. Any who say differently are seen as doom and gloom Cassandras, and their words are heeded just as much. Rilla's crush, Kenneth Ford, even calls it, quote, rotten luck that a broken ankle, which was still healing, would keep him out of this brief skirmish. So all of the men want to go and fight, right? Well, not quite, but first, let's get to the women folk. So, point two. Beyond the fact that many of the young men of the Ingleside Circle believe the war to be a short-lived adventure, and perhaps a break from studying, why else would Canadian lads fight for England? Because they did. Over 400,000 Canadian men and women served overseas. 67,000 of them died. The fact is that many British Canadians still saw themselves and their country as very much part of the British Empire. The Canadian government was allowed to determine their nation's level of involvement in the war, and they went all in, which it seems many citizens wanted. According to Rilla's oldest brother, not the doom and gloom Walter, if England joined in the fight, why, her older brother explained, we'd all have to turn in and help her, he cried gaily. We couldn't let the old grey mother of the northern sea fight it out alone, could we? We're the cubs. We've got to pitch in tooth and claw if it comes to a family row, he went on cheerfully. It is, as another character explains, a family affair. And yet for others, such as a girl semi-adopted by a local family, the matter isn't as clear-cut. What does it matter, she asks, if there's going to be a war over there in Europe? I'm sure it doesn't concern us. Point three brings us to the women left at home. What were they to do while the men went to save the empire? Rilla bemoans her fate to sit at home and quotes to herself from an unknown source, and it is un- I can't find it. Google has failed me, guys. So if you can find it, please let me know. The quote is, When our women fail in courage, shall our men be fearless still? The minister's daughter cries out, Oh, if only I were a man to go too. And finally, when her oldest brother joins up, Rilla writes in her diary a line from Sir Walter Scott's Lady of the Lake. He goes to do what I had done, had Douglas's daughter been his son. So what could the women do? Well, at home, many started Red Crosses and Junior Red Crosses, such as Rilla and her family participated in. They ripped cloth, they knitted hats, they knitted socks, they made care packages. But 4,000 Canadian women also went overseas to serve as nurses. And this sacrifice is also reflected in the book. Before the war is over, the minister's daughter sails to Europe and, in fact, will return home after that of her wounded love interest. But not everyone was rushing to join the fray, and that brings us to point four. The issues of cowardice and pacifism are themes in Rilla of Ingleside. According to the Blythes, Rilla's parents, 
not fighting is considered, quote, selfish and small-souled. When another mother, whose son has not joined up, tries to comfort Anne, Rilla's mother, when her oldest son is leaving, Anne replies tartly, it might have been worse. I might have had to urge him to go. For all that, though, there is one member of the Ingleside family who does not enlist right away, even though he knows he could. Walter, Rilla's poet brother. He is deemed by most of the public and all of his family as too weak to fight due to a previous illness. But he knows they're wrong, and he is well enough. He continues to hide behind this excuse because the pain and brutality of war terrify him. But even though his family is relieved he can enlist, not all believe Walter is unfit. While at college, he receives an anonymous letter deriding his behavior. A story maligning him is spread by a neighbor and told to Rilla by one of her quote-unquote friends. Walter believes that a favorite professor who has two sons off fighting the war won't even look at him, and he's even sent a white feather, a symbol of cowardice, in the mail. Rilla's crush, Ken, he of the formerly broken ankle, is called a slacker while walking on the street because his limp is no longer noticeable. Eventually, both boys join up. Walter caves to the pressure, and Ken is relieved he is considered healed enough to fight. Montgomery does present both characters sympathetically, and even defends Walter and presents him not as a true coward, but just someone aware of the reality of war, unlike his brother and friends who think it's a grand lark. But perhaps this sympathetic portrayal was because she, as the author, knew they would fight and were not supporters of Germany. While various characters, such as Walter, might be said to embrace pacifism, or at the least that war is hell, there is one character, a Mr. Pryor, called Whiskers on the Moon for his large head and beard, who vocally argues that Canadians should not be fighting, and that England's motives for declaring war on Germany are less than pure. He believes Britain to be jealous of Germans' greatness. Whisker also refuses to believe stories of German atrocities, and even though we now know that some were embellished as they traveled from newspaper to newspaper, for all of his trouble, Whiskers is actually physically shaken by another adult man and thrown from church after he delivers a prayer against the war. Gilbert, Anne's husband, Rilla's father, the town doctor, describes the scene as inappropriate but satisfying. Finally, once the armistice, the end of the war, is declared, what happens to Whiskers? He suffers a paralytic stroke. And as Susan, our gossip-driven, Kitchener-loving housekeeper, says, I'm not saying it's a judgment on him, because I am not in the councils of the Almighty, but one can have one's own thoughts about it. Montgomery seems to approve of this outcome. Her characters certainly do. In Lucy Maud Montgomery's Canada, there is no place for a Canadian who believes the war effort to be anything but a noble sacrifice on the part of the British Empire. And this brings us to point five, the causes for the war. Now, throughout the book, there is discussion of the Kaiser and his plans and how this war was 20 years in the making. But we also get to a more romantic or idealized view of the war. Loftier, spiritual thoughts embrace why we're fighting. A few of the in the book believe that the war is a punishment by God for the wickedness of the world. But the local minister, and perhaps Montgomery herself, hope that the self-sacrifice and blood, blood is a recurring theme in this book, that the blood of millions will pave their way to a great new world. Now, either way you dice it, it comes across as a rather ancient idea of a god demanding human sacrifices, which is interesting in the work of a good Presbyterian woman married in real life to a minister and 
who has her fictional minister propose this explanation. Later, we even get the minister's youngest son sacrificing by drowning his new beloved kitten in hopes of bringing the soldiers home. While his mother tries to explain that it's not how it works, it is obvious where his idea comes from, the adults around him. After returning from the front, Rilla's oldest brother, the same one who said that as a cub you needed to pitch in and save the mother country, puts his new perspective into words, and we can almost hear Lucy Ma Montgomery willing it to be true as he tells us, We're in a new world, and we've got to make it a better one than the old. It's not done yet, though some folks seem to think it ought to be. The job isn't finished, it isn't really begun. The old world is destroyed, and we must build up the new one. It will be the task of years. I've seen enough of war to realize that we've got to make a world where wars can't happen. We've given Prussianism its mortal wound, but it isn't dead yet, and it isn't confined to Germany either. It isn't enough to drive out the old spirit. We've got to bring in the new. Now, I promise, if you do read Rilla, that there are more facts about life on the home front, such as the importance of newspapers, the exaggeration of some of the atrocities, the sacrifice of the family dog, lice, and life in the trenches, including facing sudden death. And even, just for fun, the idea of adolescence and child-rearing during the early 20th century make their way in. At the beginning of the book, Rilla mentions that someone told her that the years between 15 and 19 are the best years of a girl's life. For our heroine, those years have been marked by the long shadow of the war to end all wars. Death has touched those who are near and dear to her, and the world will never be the same. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes. See you next week.